magical time in my life where like oh my gosh all these things are happening i'm working for mr bakad it's and donald pleasance calls me one day and says you know it's the best halloween he's read since the first and then we started shooting <laughs> hello and welcome to the debut episode of the horror mark i'm your host joel brown find me on twitter at joel brown underscore jb and you can find the horror mark on facebook and twitter at the horror mark and I have to tell you right off the bat, I am so excited to be dropping this podcast and this episode. I've always been a horror fan since I was a young kid, like lots of horror fans, watching inappropriate movies at an inappropriate young age and being absolutely hooked. I mean, I remember my sister and her friends, they would have slumber parties and sleepovers, and I'd be watching movies like Child's Play, The Blair Witch Project, heaps of other ridiculous movies. But it's definitely, for me... Scream, that was the first horror franchise that I was absolutely obsessed with. Hello, Sydney. And because that first film with Scream had a heavy Halloween influence, I soon became enamored with the Halloween franchise. Here it comes. Which makes it very fitting that the first episode is Halloween related. I'm talking about Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, Halloween 6. And I remember as a young kid that it was very hard to find this uh, video, the uh, VHS at the time, uh, in any uh, video store. Uh, I'm sure they existed, but there definitely wasn't uh, an influx of uh, multiple copies to for these to be found, at least not until the early 2000s. And I mean, up until that point, I'd seen everything from Halloween 3, Season of the Witch... H2O and Resurrection, 4-5, and of course the original and the uh, second. So to say it was interesting when I finally did get to watch Halloween 6, uh, that's definitely an understatement. I recently reached out to the writer of Halloween 6, Daniel Ferrens, to see if he would be interested in being on the show, and what do you know, he said yes. And I thought this was a great opportunity fantastic opportunity to get a look behind the scenes and insider's perspective of one of the most controversial entries in the Halloween series to that point. Trick or treat, mother... Daniel Ferens has two features which will be making their way to US theatres very, very soon. This time about real-life serial killers in Ted Bundy and Eileen Warnos. And we discussed those at length as well. So strap yourself in. Uh, unless you're driving or walking, uh, of course, and enjoy my interview with writer-director and horror fan, Daniel Ferens. On July 14th, a dark-haired man in his late 20s or early 30s was seen approaching several girls on campus. 
He told them his name was Ted. Need a lift? Ted knows how to make these girls trust him. You need help there? I dropped my keys. Would you mind? You are a lifesaver. He sees their kindness as weakness. And he knows how to make them disappear. I can honestly say Theodore Bundy is the most dangerous individual I've ever observed. He derives mystical satisfaction from killing. First it's one victim, then two, then three. There's always that need that's left. Desire for more. It's a never-ending cycle, like a serial. A serial killer. That's what they should be called. Your son is currently on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. My father used to say Teddy was conceived in hell. What most stimulates an individual is in the hunt. Something big going on down here. A female student was attacked at Florida State University. What the hell is going on, her? Shutting down the task force. But he's still not there. you got to let it go. Why don't you tell them that you no longer have the resources to go after the man who mutilated their daughters? I'm going to get him if it's the last thing I do. I'm going to get him for what he did to those girls. He's taking time bomb. He was a good son. No man is truly innocent. My next guest is a massive advocate for the horror genre. He's an award-winning writer-director with credits such as Never Sleep Again, The Elm Street Legacy, The Haunting of Sharon Tate, The Emptyville Murders, Crystal Lake Memories, The Complete History of Friday the 13th, and of course, everyone's cult favourite, Halloween 6, aka The Curse of Michael Myers. Now, he has two new films which are about to uh, hit uh, in the US, Ted Bundy, American Boogeyman, due to hit in the US theatres August 16, and Eileen Warnos, American Boogie Woman, soon to hit theatres on September 20, 2021. It's a big hello and welcome to Daniel Ferens. Hello. Hello, Joel. How are you? Nice to be here with you. Very great. Uh, you're you're a busy guy. Two movies uh, in the span of a, a few months that are soon to hit um, hit theaters there in the US. Uh, hopefully, we can uh, get that here in Australia or some form of release. But uh, you've been a, a pretty busy person, sort of post production, technically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen. I, I mean, we were just talking before we started recording here, but um, you know, just the pandemic has just been such a a blight on everybody's lives and livelihoods the past you know year and a half. So, you know, I just have been so grateful to have been working during this crazy, crazy time in our, you know, history. So yeah, I was I somehow managed to to pull off two feature films in this in this crazy time. So yeah. Uh and look and they're the two that you just mentioned, which is the first being the Ted Bundy American Boogeyman starring Chad Michael Murray as the titular character, Ted Bundy, serial killer, terrifying character. And, um, and also um, <clears throat> followed by um, List, um, who is playing the young version of the American serial killer, Eileen Warnos, um, who is so beautifully portrayed by uh, Charlize Theron and uh, Monster many years ago, and she won the Oscar for that. So. Just a couple, you know, small shoes for us to step into. <laughs> Is there a bit of trepidation when, I guess, wanting to do these films, knowing that big studio productions have sort of covered uh, these stories before? 
Yes, of course, you know, and, and I think there's been some, you know, online backlash against making another Ted Bundy movie. You know, haven't we seen enough about this guy? And I get all of that. But I think that people should, in a way, reserve judgment. I feel like everybody rushes to judgment so quickly these days when they mm-hmm. get a, the smallest announcement. They, they just think they know what it is. I, I, would, I would hope that people would give this a, 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 this a chance and see what, what we're doing with this film, which is very different from the other films that have come down the road. And, and, nothing, and no discrediting or anything like that against you know, you know, the, the other films like the, the Zac Efron film, which was um, on Netflix a year or so ago. Well done, you know, and I think each director, each writer brings their own perspective to this. And I think what's so compelling about the Ted Bundy story in particular is that there are so many facets to it. He wasn't just one thing. And, and like most human beings, you know, we all have different sides of us. But in my portrayal of him, and again, this isn't to denigrate anybody else's portrayal or, or rendition of his, his story. And I don't like to spend a whole lot of time talking about Ted Bundy as he was because he was a horrific human being, a monster in his own way, who I don't feel really was worthy of that kind of attention. In, in our take on the story, he is kind of the boogeyman who is traveling the byways, highways of, of America, searching for victims, while we see the story and the struggle of the young female detective out of Seattle, Washington, who was a very real person named Kathleen McChesney, that, you know, and, and her efforts to try to stop this, this monster before he kills again and again and again. So it, it really is that side of it. It's not, it's not the side of the story of like the misunderstood Ted or, oh, maybe he wasn't so bad or, or his sensational trial. And, you know, I just didn't want to shine that kind of spotlight on that again. It's just to me, that's, it's been said, number one, done well. But I just didn't want to tell that story yet again. But I felt like there was this start part of it that was a bit ignored, you know, just how monstrous he was. And 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 kind of peeling that curtain back, you know, and showing what it was behind closed doors without being overly graphic or or you know sensationalized or anything like that. You know, we in fact we downplay the violence quite a bit in this, but I think the impression of it is there. And I think that's what I want people to remember is that. You know, one of the things that disturbs me is that as time goes on, people sometimes, not everybody, but there are, there's a faction out there that seems to sort of worship these, these dark characters, you know, uh, whether they're real or, or not real, like a Michael Myers in Halloween. You know, it's interesting to me that the bad guy seems to be the hero. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't see it that way at all. These films that I've made, I, I feel like I'm trying to reflect that. And some people don't like it. Some people don't like that reminder. Some people don't want to see that. And I understand um, it's not for everybody. But I just felt like there was a different layer, a different facet of the story that could be told. And that's what we did. Need a lift? I can honestly say Theodore Bundy is the most dangerous individual I've ever observed. First it's one victim, then two, then three. Always that desire for more. I'm gonna get him for this the last thing I do. He was a good son. What most stimulates an individual is bound. And I believe uh, with the uh, Eileen uh, Warnos uh, film, you sort of focusing more um, with her marriage with her then husband. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Again, like an interesting kind of footnote in a way to her story. Like how. 
weird is it that young Eileen, I mean, in her very early 20s, you know, hitchhiked down to Florida, met up with this much, much older man in his late 60s, early 70s, named Louis Fell, and married him very quickly. The marriage dissolved in, I think, less than two months. But it was just like, wow, you know, that this woman who was so, you know, kind of known to the world as just this horrific, you know, monster, pardon the, you know, pun using the movie title, but um, she was so kind of monstrous and frightening and, and tragic that she, there was this way in her early life, you know, there was this road that she took and could have taken that she could have had a completely different life. But I think that the seeds were sown in her early childhood. She was this, you know, victim of terrible circumstance, terrible upbringing, terrible, you know, just just her lot in life was not one of being a, a have in this world. You know, she was definitely a have not. Um, and so the film kind of speaks to that, but it tells it through this prism of Eileen t- recounting the story on the eve of her execution to, you know, a journalist who comes to visit with her in the prison meeting room. And, and she's kind of toying with him. And so the story she tells is kind of a true story, but it's Eileen as the Eileen was often known to do in her later years, just to kind of embellish on that tale because there's not much we actually know about it other than some of the you know facts that I've, I've said here is that she married this older man and, and kind of wreaked havoc on his life. She apparently beat him with his cane to get money from him. She, you know, terrible things were kind of happening even then. So the movie kind of takes that premise and sort of runs with it through the, the perspective of the older Eileen, who's kind of, again, like toying with this uh, journalist who comes to visit her um, on the eve of her execution. So that's the setup. Was that journalist based around any real journalist? Um. You know, bits and pieces. I mean, like Nick Broomfield was was the guy that came in and, you know, interviewed her extensively for his amazing documentaries on Eileen that I think shed a different light on her, you know, and showed her as this I don't know, kind of like tragic victim. You know, I think mm-hmm. she had mental illness. And I mean, the fact that they executed a woman who I don't think was was well was not sane. I think anybody seeing Broomfield's documentary judge the fact that she would be able to see clearly she, she wasn't sane but we're also talking about the state of florida um so don't get me started um <laughs> that being said um yeah so i mean the, the reporter the journalist that comes in is kind of a you know he's kind of a composite of lots of different people i'm sure you know spoke with her but you know nick Broomfield being particular one that i think stands out now i love the uh, horror synergy i believe uh, tobin bell playing the uh, role of the husband Mm-hmm. You know, and again, like, I don't think it was because of the horror synergy of it all. It was just that Tobin is such a great actor. And I think it's funny that people see him, you know, as, as this iconic character as Jigsaw in mm. Saw films, you know, but I just thought Tobin is just a, a remarkable character actor who's versatile in so many ways. And it was just, you know, he, his name was suggested. Um, and I was like, oh, my God, what a great idea. And he's a really good actor. And, you know, this just showcases a completely different side of him. So. There's no kind of wink or nod to the audience like, oh, this is Jigsaw. You know? yeah. <laughs> he's just playing, he's playing this part and playing it very well, I think. 
Now, because I think you're endeared to horror fans because you yourself being a horror fan. Now, I guess Mm. it's a bit of a two-part question. Do you feel that's an added responsibility, whether you're writing, producing or directing, or do you feel potentially is that um, shoeboxing you into just a one genre or category or a style of uh, making Mm. films? I mean, I don't know. I Listen, I love horror. I, like you said, I, I am a horror fan. I have been a horror fan since the time I was, you know, a child um, when I saw the original Halloween. So, um, yeah, I mean, listen, I don't, I'm not one of those people that got into the industry to like use horror as a springboard to something else. You know, like for me, it's, it's what I love. It's a genre that I'm familiar with. It's one that I appreciate. It's the fans that I kind of vibe better with <laughs> i don't think you'd see me making like a merchant ivory type of film or one about you know sports or something i love the genre so it just it's, it's my it's my world and those are my people for better or worse and sometimes they're not so nice but some you know but you're going to get an honest reaction and i think mm. that is one of the great things about or crowd if you will is that they're very vocal they're very opinionated um, and then there's also like a real sense of community to, to us, I guess. And uh, that is something that, you know, I don't think any other genre, with the exception of maybe science fiction fans, um, really has that sense of community. Mm. So, yeah. So I don't know if I fully answered your question, but that's, yeah, that's how I feel about it. Um, I mean, would, would I would I step outside the genre? Sure. Yeah, I actually have a couple projects that are not, you know, horror per se. But I think everything that I do kind of harkens back to that in some form. I mean, like these, like Eileen Warnos is an interesting one because we approached it as kind of like a, almost like a film noir. Mm. So it was fun to kind of dabble in that world while still kind of paying a homage to horror, you know, films that I love as well. So it was, it was kind of nice to do something that wasn't full on horror film. I was recently on Shudder and I uh, came across uh, Screen Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, obviously uh, Mark Patton. Has he uh, thanked you mm-hmm. for the Never Sleep Again doco and the resurgence of his career? You know, he has. And, um, it, you know, I'm thrilled that he went off and did his own, you know, documentary because I think there was such a, again, like the Ted Bundy thing, not to compare the two, but there was such a bigger story to be told than the one we were able to, you know, with the time that we had allotted for, you know, that segment in part two. I think also, you know, I, well, first of all, I mean, I guess I kind of can take credit. I did find Mark. I could make a documentary about what it took to find him because he was very much, I wouldn't say hidden. It wasn't like he was in witness protection, but he might as well have been <laughs> because he was next to impossible. I think almost every convention person, you know, person who organizes conventions, you know, horror conventions have had been on the lookout for him for years and couldn't find him. But somehow I tracked him down. It was my own effort. It wasn't like we hired a private investigator and like that. I found him through just detective work of my own. You know, I think that it's funny. Some people say to me like, yo, you know, in another life, you should become a private detective. You're really good at this stuff, I guess, for whatever that's worth. But anyway, no, I managed to track Mark down. He was very kind. I remember when he came in, we had, because we were so excited that he was found. We I had Mark Patton t-shirts made for everybody, like Jesse on the shirt saying like, he's been found. And he, we were all wearing them when he came in to his interview and he was gracious and nice. And, uh, and I think that sort of opened up the door to him doing conventions and meeting fans more and getting a little bit more active in social media. And I think the next extension of that was to do kind of the more complete story of his, 
his backstory, his career, and all of that. So, I, listen, no, I'm, I'm that's thrilling. I think it's awesome that Mark has kind of had a, a, a second life after all of this stuff. So, um, he's got a great story to tell. Absolutely. I mean, um, I mean, I'm a I'm a straight male, so I guess I can't sort of touch on it uh, too much or have much of a background. But I feel uh, today's climate is a lot more accepting of. Uh, I guess the the LGBTQ community and things mm-hmm. like that. So I guess it, it's I, I, I'd hate to because he kind of felt like after watching the documentary, he really felt hidden away because he mm-hmm. felt like he kind of been shunned or not that. Oh, yeah. it, it was just uh, it's hard to explain, but I feel like it sort of made sense for him to sort of make a resurgence now because I think people are more accepting and like you mm-hmm. said, the the horror community is like a family and very accepting of all sorts of different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think that is part of it. I think that Mark had to, I think, I think he was, I don't know that he was necessarily, and I can't, I can't speak for him. I, my, it's just my perception. I, I, I don't know that Mark was necessarily shunned, but I feel like in a way he felt shunned. So that doesn't mean that he wasn't, mm. you know, I don't know that anybody made a conscious like, oh, that guy, you know, we're not going to hire him because he's gay. But I think things happen in Mark's life. Again, this is my own thoughts that pushed him further away, you know, from the industry, from feeling comfortable because there were a lot of people, I think, making statements, you know, and there was a, a, an air of homophobia in the world, you know, at that time. So, uh, and I think just Mark became kind of a casualty of that. And that's unfortunate because he's a talented guy. And, and I think that he, you know, had, had he been given another vehicle after, you know, Freddie's revenge to, to showcase his talents. I think he could have gone on and done a lot of other things. So I think that he felt in a way that that movie killed his career, no pun intended, uh, just when it was sort of getting started because of the kind of implied, you know, gay subtext of the whole thing. Because, mm. I mean, he was on Broadway with, with Cher. I mean, uh, yep. so great, great actor. And it's just, I mean, it's all come full circle now, which is uh, great yeah. to see. Yeah, and I think he's getting other, you know, smaller indie movie roles and stuff. So it's nice to see him active again and kind of not feeling shamed, you know. And I think that I think shame is the biggest killer of of, of creativity, um, anything, you know. So I think that that's great that he's feeling more confident and and more accepted. Every legend is based on fact. <laughs> Every myth is grounded in truth. For 17 years, the town of Haddonfield, Illinois, has been haunted by a night when evil roamed the streets and a madman ruled the night. Everyone knows his name. Now, Everyone will know the truth. I knew what he was, but I never knew why. Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers, rated R. Okay, so let's talk Halloween 6. How does a young fan of the Halloween franchise find himself in the office of Mustafa Akkad? Um, I believe in research, you uh, you videotaped uh, the original Halloween when it was screened on TV. Uh, that's true, yes. 
once I did. Um, we have this this machine, this new thing, this gigantic thing that sat on top of our television called a VCR. It's like a brand new thing. And uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, this scary movie, like, you know, all this thing, Halloween. I've heard about it, you know, but I wasn't you know, allowed to see it. But it was on television. So I think my mother was like, OK, it's on TV. You can watch it. Um, but that didn't go that didn't last long because I remember vividly that the rest of that as the movie got darker and scarier and scarier as as Halloween is designed to do you know it, it starts in the light and then it goes darker and darker through the whole thing uh, I just remember as as night fell on Haddonfield the entire family got up and went to bed <laughs> leaving me alone at age 12 on the couch and I and, I, and as the movie got and the lights were off and I remember just sitting there with my little VCR remote control so I could edit out the commercials. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and just I was like, well, I have to get through it because I, got, I, you know, I, I, you know, it was like in those days where you just recorded everything. I, was, I just didn't want the commercials, so I was like, I have to sit through this movie because I have to get the commercials out. So, but I was utterly terrified, and I remember having pillows stacked up all around me and just wanting to scream out loud, but everyone was asleep, so I couldn't do it. And that was the beginning. But how I ended up in the office of Mustafa Akkad, that's a whole other <laughs> years long thing. So, you know, it all kind of began with the viewing of Halloween, the original on TV. And then seeing Halloween 2, it opened in theaters, I want to say a week or so after that TV premiere of the first film. And I think it was that that just kind of became like a, a five alarm blaze for me. You know, every, I, I just needed to know how they did it. And so I became that kid in junior high and high school where I was making my own like fan films, you know, so before they were ever called that. So we were making you know, Halloween Hospital of Horrors and Halloween Party and Friday the 13th, the Unknown Chapter, <laughs> things like that. And that's how I recruited kids to do these things and made friends. And I was kind of shy and new in town. We'd moved from a different you know, we moved from Los Angeles to the small town called Santa Rosa, so I didn't really know anyone. So those movies kind of helped me. I don't know. I think there's a rite of passage kind of thing to that. So anyway, uh, cutting a few years later, quite a few years later, not, not too many, around the age of 18, I, I made my way back to L.A. by myself uh, with this goal in mind of writing movies for a living. Didn't know how you would do that. I didn't know anyone. Um, I had been fortunate enough, though, to have had uh, some interaction with a producer named Frank Mancuso Jr., who was the producer of the Friday the 13th films. And I had sent, when I was 14, I think it was 14, I would mailed, like snail mailed Frank a letter pitching him my idea for a Friday the 13th sequel. <laughs> and I got a response. And it was the first letter he said and last that he had ever responded to from any fan anywhere in the world. And I think he was sort of blown away by the way that I pitched my story and the way I verbalized it somehow. I don't remember what I said, but it was enough to get this man's attention. And, and Frank was really encouraging in, in this letter. And he became kind of a mentor to me. You know, I would write to him and he'd write me something back. And you know, so I was really lucky to have had that encouragement from somebody in the business um, and having known no one. So I, you know, did the thing and moved here and, been here ever since but in 89 when halloween 5 came out i saw it with some friends and i remember walking out of that theater saying i'm going to write halloween 6 and i didn't know how that was going to happen but i just knew i was going to do that in those days there was a thing called this pre-internet called the hollywood creative directory and i looked up 
Mustafa Akkad's production company, which was called uh, Trankis Films, Galaxy International, he had a distribution company. And I sent a letter, kind of the way, the way I'd sent a letter to Frank, and it landed on the desk of a man named Ramsey Thomas, who worked for the company and had produced the fifth film. And he liked the letter and he said, send me something that you've written, not a Halloween movie or a script or a treatment, just send me a sample of your writing and, and um, we'll be in touch. And I got a call. Not long after, Mustafa would like to meet you. You liked your script. Oh my God, this can't be happening. So I spent the next, I don't know, a couple of weeks just researching everything. And I made this book, I call it the Bible of Halloween. In fact, I think they still call it that, uh, where I compiled family trees, the Strodes, the Myers, the whole lore of the holiday, Samhain, uh, this bizarre mark that appeared on this mysterious character's wrist in, and Michael's wrist in the, in the fifth film. Like, what is this thing? I went to a new age bookstore and looked that up and turned out to be a rune called Thorn. And uh, I brought all of this research in and, and, and met Mustafa for, I think, all of five minutes. And I think he kind of chuckled when he saw, you know, was, at the time I was, I think I was 19. And I was, he's like, who's this kid? You know, I remember him sitting behind the big desk with a pot pipe in his mouth and, you know, I'm terrified. And that was, that was the meeting. And I left the Bible with him. Five years later, I get a call, five years. He wants to meet me again. They need a writer. They're up against a, a production deadline, start date, and they don't have no script. Please come in. And I went in, I pitched the, my concept to his son, Malik, and uh, producer, Paul Freeman, uh, who had done four, Halloween four. And all, we were off and running at that point, just almost instantly. And um, I think I had beat out quite a few, you know, big time writers, directors <laughs> for this part, for this role and to, to, to write this film because, you know, none of them were really getting it, you know? And I think it was the fact that I came in with so much research and I didn't come in with like, Oh, talk to my agent. You know, I was so thrilled to be there. And I think that in a way they knew they could take advantage of that. I don't mean that in a bad way, but because I was so enthusiastic, you know, that, and I mean, they know, you know, I would have done it for free. But, <laughs> but they treated me very kindly and, you know, listen to this day, like that's, it was the beginning of my career and I'm eternally grateful. I mean, that was a great sort of uh, follow on, I, you know, the online rumor being that uh, Scott Spiegel of uh, Evil Dead 2 fame, even Quentin Tarantino, oh. apparently in line or he was somewhat of a surrogate to write Halloween 6. And I mean, the question was right. ultimately why they decided on you. Um, and you kind of touched on it there. Obviously, I think being the fan and sort of actually having a love for the franchise as opposed mm -hmm. to, as you said, <laughs> talk to my agent but I, I want to go back you mentioned number five you, you watch it in theaters and you said to yourself then and there I'm gonna write number six what was it mm -hmm. about what was it about uh Halloween five that you said that to yourself you know I don't know what it was it was just something just crystallized at that moment in the lobby of the theater after it was over you could still hear the credits rolling in the background and I said to the two friends I was with I'm like I'm, I'm gonna write the next movie and uh, you know and I think they believed me <laughs> you know I mean I was you know young enough to be kind of naive you know enough to be to be so naive about it that I like you just I didn't know that that's not the way things happen 
you know, so I think in a way that worked to my advantage. I was just, I didn't have, I didn't have the industry knowledge I have now to know that that just doesn't happen that way, yeah. you know? Um, so I think the fact that I was blind to it a bit and, and, and green and naive in that sense helped me kind of get over the fear factor and just kind of go for it. And, you know, not knowing where the chips would fall. I mean, obviously, like I said, there was a five-year lag between that initial meeting and then the one where I actually got hired. So there had been, and it wasn't because they were developing all this other material. I mean, the, the rights were sitting in limbo, kind of the way that the Friday the 13th rights have been sitting in limbo for the past several years. But back in those days, there was there was some sort of legal wrangling going on between the different partners of, you know, who own the rights to the Halloween brand. And so it took a bunch of years for that to get resolved. And then when they finally made a deal to do it with this new company called Miramax Dimension, which had done, you know, Quentin's, you know, um, uh, fiction. And there were a couple of other kind of very prestige titles that they were launching that company with because they had been acquired by Disney of all things. But, you know, Halloween 6, it's, I think, the second movie horror film out of the gate for, um, for Dimension, which was just a label of Miramax, kind of a sister company, you know, their offices were across the hall kind of thing, owned by the Weinsteins of ill repute these days, of course. But, um, but yeah, it was interesting. And then when we finally got to making the film and there I was on set in Salt Lake City, Utah, and it was just this surreal experience, a dream come true. And yet the, the irony was that there were all these like film executives running around, you know, studio executives running around with Mickey Mouse jackets. <laughs> that was pretty funny. You, you mentioned there Miramax, uh, I guess, acquiring the the beat or the rights to the Halloween, um, mm-hmm. Halloween 6 at least. Um, rumor is that they sort of outbid or they beat New Line Cinema, who at the time yeah. um, John Carpenter had somewhat of a relationship with. Do you think if the chips had fallen the other way and they did go with New Line, that you would have even been involved with Halloween 6? No, no way. No, absolutely not. It would have been a John Carpenter, Deborah Hill production aid for new lion. I mean, at this point we probably would have seen Michael versus Jason versus Freddie. Yeah. I mean, cause new line owned those characters. And I think that they would have loved to have had Michael Myers, but I, you know, I don't know how, I don't, I don't know the specifics of how that deal worked itself out and how Carpenter and Hill at the time were kind of not, you know, included in it. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I just know that there was definitely an effort on their part to try to do it with new line. And I think Carpenter's take on it, we kind of made fun of it in six was he wanted to put a Michael Myers in space. <laughs> so I couldn't, you know, kind of help take a jab at that. Cause that's, you know, and then of course they ended up doing it with Jason. That didn't work out so well. I, um, I recently made a meme, um, obviously, uh, the Michael Myers mask, uh, William Shatner, Star Trek, um, Halloween mm. Star Trek, the shape in huh. space. Oh, I love it. I mean, who knows? Maybe one day that'll happen. You know? <laughs> They're going to run out of ideas eventually. So you touched on that, um, that they, they had the mask. If I think the first thing you see when you get the call back um, is they had mm. the mask, but they didn't have a script. Um, I guess was, was the mandate to you this has to be a direct sequel to number five. I mean, we, we obviously would see separate timelines and reboots mm-hmm. sort of happen in later years. Yeah. Was that ever an option to, hey, let's start anew? Or was like, no, we no. need to continue this on? 
Mustafa was very focused on giving the fans because they were in it. You have to understand like in, in 89 after Halloween five came out again, pre-internet, all of that. So the office was being deluged with these fan letters. Who is the man in black? Who is the mysterious stranger? Who Like, he's like, I have to answer this question. We can't just move on. We have to, we have to deal with this. And I think that was what I came in with. I had an answer that none of the other respective writers had, you know, and I, for me, again, I always circled back called back to the original movie. And I think he appreciated that. And the one thing I remember saying to him in that meeting was it's Rosemary's baby meets Halloween. That was like the kind of elevator pitch tagline that I said out loud and his eyes just kind of grew wide. It was almost like, you know, in interviews, I, I, and this all happened later, all these interviews that I saw, you know, you know, different documentaries on Halloween. But I remember most of us saying, man, like, Oh, the reason I, I greenlit Halloween, the original in 78, was that John Carpenter came in to me with a very simple pitch. The boogeyman murders babysitters on Halloween. And he understood that. So when I said Rosemary's baby meets Halloween, he understood that. It was simple concept that he was, he, he grasped it right away. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. It's kind of the attitude. Go and write a treatment. Come back to us in a week. If we like it, we'll go to the next step. And I wrote this treatment and it was epic. I mean, I don't know how I did this in a way. I don't think I slept for a week. And uh, it was probably 30 pages and it was enormous. I mean, it was just everything that I could think of. It's like one of those, like throw the whole, you know, everything in the kitchen sink into it. And I remember him reading it and calling me right away and saying, this is great, but it's too much. It's too big. But these, the great thing is we have two movies here. There's Halloween six and there's Halloween seven. Great. Let's get going. And that was the beginning of it. I guess, um, yeah, it's a story in itself. Um, the production, the, the script would sort of uh, go on to change. But mm-hmm. if yeah. you could, if you could, in an ideal world, uh, the script that you originally wrote, or that would be the the final script, I guess, of your original, uh, how different would Halloween Six be? I mean, so different. I it just it was one of those things where you know, again, it was this magical time in my life where, like, oh my gosh, all these things are happening. I'm working for most of a cod. It's Halloween six, and casting notices are going out, and Daniel Harris wants to be in the movie, and she's her photos up on the wall with the rest of the cast, and and Donald Pleasance calls me one day and says, you know, it's the best Halloween he's read since the first, and he's thrilled. You know, I, it's like all these things happening that you couldn't. For me as a fan of the franchise, and I think other fans hearing this would relate, it was surreal. And then we started shooting. <laughs> and I remember from the very early days of production where I was kind of ensconced in a, in a, in a room in the hotel that everybody was staying at and making all of these script changes to accommodate you know, weather patterns and <laughs> things that were happening that were not foreseen, like you know, they're shooting in Salt Lake City and they had an early winter and all of a sudden it's snowing. So a yeah. lot of these exterior scenes had to become interior scenes. And, you know, that was frustrating enough. But but then add to it like, oh, we didn't shoot that scene. Well, what do you mean you didn't shoot that scene? Well, we didn't have time. We mean you didn't have time. Well, there's no time. We couldn't have shot that. But, but I'm like, but that's the whole point of the scene. It's like you've got to build up. Like, like Michael Myers is a trickster. He doesn't just go in a, into a basement and kill somebody. Mm. He, he he fucks with their head a little bit first you gotta create that tension that cat and mouse that's what it's about that's what the script is and that's what i signed up to do or 
I think a lot of these actors signed up for. Why are we shortchanging all of this? And again, I was naive enough to not know my place, which was shut the fuck up. <laughs> You're the writer. So I would constantly kind of say like, wait a minute, you guys are not getting this right. This is not how this was written. This is not how this is intended. So it was that level of frustration, you know, from on the production side, somewhat with the director, I felt like he wasn't fully in tune with the franchise. And I did feel like at some point there was a, it was just a change of heart with him. I feel like he was more interested in, you know, kind of creating a, I don't know, again, not to cast aspersions many years ago, but like, I just felt like Joe Chappelle, the director, was not in it to make the best Halloween movie. He was in it to make the best career move for himself and, and to sign, you know, and, and he kind of played very nice with the brass at Miramax. Rather than sort of fighting for the movie, he was sort of saying yes to everything that they would ask him to do at the expense of, I felt like, the heart of the story of this thing, which was really bringing it back to the tension and the vibe of the first film. Everybody says that when they make one of these. Can't capture lightning in a bottle. But to create a story that felt that it was at least worthy of the name. And there are just so many instances where things just on screen or like the dailies that were showing me were like, wait a minute, well, what about when he's killing Beth in the window and, and Kara's like a rear window scene and she's like, oh my God, he's right behind you. Well, in the script, like he's looking at her and she's looking at him and he like pulls the, pulls the, the shade down over the window. And I'm like, that's like Michael Myers. He's like telling her, like, come over, <laughs> let's play, you know, and like just stuff like that, that just they just never did it. So, you know, there's this kind of legendary, I guess, now in fan circles, this producer's cut that we finally got released a few years back, um, which is very alternate, you know, an alternate cut, but a very different cut of the movie that had all of the kind of cult aspects of it intact. But again, that was still not my vision of the film because it just lacked the, the suspense. And I think more than a horror slasher film, the original Halloween is a suspense movie. It's not, it's not about gore. And so when they started, you know, then they did the reshoots of our film and, and it, and it became a complete Miramax takeover. You know, the Akkads were basically removed from the equation of their own you know, project that ended up in a lawsuit. I'm had to understand. And then, yeah, Miramax came in and kind of was running the show and it was just gore and heads exploding and people impaled to things. And I just, I didn't get it, you know? And I think we all, I mean, I can speak for Paul Rudd. I just remember we we're just standing there going like, what, what, are, what are we doing? What, what is this becoming? Just felt they were cheapening the whole thing. So that was not a great experience, but <laughs> still the, but the great experience was that, we're making this movie. I met Donald Pleasance. He said the lines I wrote for him. <laughs> I had become a, you know, involved in this franchise in a way that I never would have imagined. And so those are the, the things that I take away from it that are the upside. You touch on the producer's cut, the theatrical cut. I think um, the producer's cut seems to, while you say sort of not too in line with your, with your original vision, it definitely sort mm -hmm. of holds up in, I guess, in a story sense. It sort of explains it a bit more. Right. Well, it makes a little more logical sense rather than like 
fetuses floating in fish tanks. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know what's going on, you know? Yeah. And I don't think they understood. I remember the director saying to me like, well, it'll all make sense when you see it on screen. And I'm like, well, it's been 26 years. I still don't quite get it, but <laughs> okay. I, I called the theoretical version, uh, carnage candy, uh, obviously just adding, um, Oh, uh, a lot more graphic great. scenes, but um, you mentioned and that's what they did. Yeah. yeah, it's exactly what they did. I mean, and that was the intention. It was the mandate that was given, and that you know, Joe, the director of the film, just followed their direction. Like, you want that? Okay, we'll give you that. You know, he never. I just felt he never really fought for the 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 thing that we all agreed upon when we started. Like, let's make this classy. Let's make this scary. Let's make this kind of a throwback. Um, like for another example, I, I had written the role of Dr. Wynn, who was from the original movie, kind of a throwback to the, you know, the character that he met in the first film where he's walking out of the asylum with Donald Pleasance. How did he learn how to drive a car? And somebody around here gave him lessons, that whole scene. And Wynn is that character. And I wanted to cast uh, Christopher Lee, who was well known at that point to have been offered the role of Loomis and, and regretted ever, you know, that he ever turned that down back in 1978 and it, you know, kind of gave Donald Pleasance a whole new career <laughs> and visibility among a, a generation of film goers that at that point, Christopher Lee hadn't had because he hadn't gone and done Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and all these things later. No, but I had really pushed and said, you know, I think, I think even in the script by where I was like, Dr. Terrence Wynn, and then it said in parens, played by Christopher Lee, <laughs> <laughs> which again, showing how naive I was, but it just, one of the producers, I'm not naming names, but said to me, nobody knows who Christopher Lee is, only you know. You know, it's like you're there and you're so excited to make it good. And then you're kind of confronted with this kind of battalion of, you know, I don't know, I guess I'll call them gatekeepers who are there to kind of just get it done as cheaply and painlessly as possible. Um, rumor online would suggest that uh, Joe Chappelle had a uh, three movie deal, so I guess maybe that's why he didn't want to uh, step on too many toes. Because I, I mean, think you're, I don't, you're already, you already alluded to the career. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that that happened early on. But I think when he played Yes Man for the Weinstein brothers, I think that they rewarded him with that. You know, mm. I think that's what happened. And you know, and listen, I'm not even begrudging Joe that. I mean, we're all ha we all have careers. We all have families you know joe was a young father at the time he had one child i think another was on the way you know i think he was 30 at the time and i think that you know we all you know i mean listen the movie industry is anything but job security so i you can't fault the guy for wanting to take that offer i absolutely can't fault him for it but it's just i just felt like there was a a point in time where he stopped caring about the movie as much as he cared about making sure he was secure. Was it true that um, he cut Donald Pleasant's uh, dialogue? Yeah, I mean, somebody did. You know, somebody on the food chain said that Donald's was too old and kids weren't going to connect with him and let's just cut his role down. I don't know that specifically it was Joe that said that, but I think there was probably somebody on the, you know, executive side of, of Miramax that probably did. And I think Joe took that, that um, as a, you know, as a, in order to reduce Donald's screen time, which to me was like, what? <laughs> he's, yeah. the, he's the star of the movie. And by the way, he just passed away. We should make yeah. this all about him. 
but again, you know, I just didn't know enough then to, to know that it was, it just wasn't my place to say the things I was saying. So I think I definitely rattled some, in fact, there was one point the, one of the assistant directors on the reshoots walked up to me and said, you know, you, you can't, you can't keep saying what you're saying because it's disruptive and um, you're going to be asked to leave. Well, wow. I mean, the next question was going to be, did you have any uh, indirect or direct uh, conversations or were you the brunt of any uh, Weinstein fury? No. Interestingly enough, I was shielded from all of that, like all of it, because of Mustafa. He took all the heat for me. <laughs> like, I, have, I mean, I, I'm so grateful to the man because he, he really kind of protected me as if I was like part of his family. Yeah. He never let me, if things were being said about me or about the script, about me, about firing me or whatever, never heard it because he shielded me from all that stuff. I, I only was told what I, uh, he thought I needed to know. That's, uh, I mean, that's a, a pretty nice thing. Like, and I think that's what was different between the studios or the, I guess the partners, wasn't it? I think the Akkad, like family it was like it felt like a real family that's the part that did you know and it's the part that lives to this day you know malik his son who's taken on the reins of this franchise and done a remarkable job with it obviously he you know he still talks to me we're still friends we still he shares you know inside things that have you know transpired about you know this thing and that's part of the movie and usually i know a little bit of something that's going on you know inter story wise or whatever he'll do me a little inside scoop on things um so it's nice to still be considered part of that you know family and um you know and i think i think malik in a way you know what it was such a terrible loss for him his family and obviously you know the the fans of the series that that his dad and his sister perished the way they did was just tragic and i don't know if you know the details of the story but they were killed in a terrorist explosion released mm-hmm. just visiting for a wedding and um, there was a suicide bomber and it was just horrific and it's interesting that most of us spent his life you know kind of trying to bridge that gap between the east and the west and 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 um islam and and western culture and like that was his kind of calling in life you know and he had made several like epic movies in his earlier years that really were about that to, for him to have died in that way, it was just a pity of, you know, sad irony. But anyway, but I think that because I did know his dad and his dad was, you know, maybe amused by me, you know, <laughs> I remember he would walk up to me with his, you know, I was kind of terrified of him, of course, because he was with that name, you know, it's an intimidating name. <laughs> just, he would just, he had this very, very dry sense of humor and he would just kind of like just saunter up to me standing on a, on, on the set, somewhere in the corner. And he tried to like catch me at like trivia questions, like Halloween trivia questions. And he'd ask me some question. I would just answer it like instantly. He'd just laugh and try to go away and try to think of something else that I wouldn't have known. I think he was always trying to stump me. He was like the, the Alex Trebek of uh, Jeopardy, uh, of uh, Halloween trivia. And uh, he couldn't, he couldn't stump me. So I, I think he was just amused by my knowledge and impressed by it. And, and the fact that I wrote it in such a, in a way that I think, got the movie greenlit very quickly. So I think he appreciated it. I came across your uh, archive uh, footage of uh, Halloween 6, and I think... Uh, oh, yeah. Like, 
I think it was just um you sort of uh, mentioned that he'll try to stump you on questions. I think you were filming, and he goes, uh, "Do you have permission to be filming?" And it, it, oh, I, get right. what, I get what you I mean remember. with the, 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 the dry humor, it kind of like putting you on the spot. That was like, him. Yeah, right. he's like, oh, "Do you have permission?" I think on that same this? day, it was one of the days he asked me, like, "Oh, who played Tommy Doyle in the original movie?" And I was like, it "Was Brian Andrews?" He's like, "Oh, I didn't know that." <laughs> You know, and he would just, he was very dry, you know, and, and, and I do remember the other, another story of him. I remember we, we did a cast reading, like a full script reading, table read at, at the, at the hotel where everybody was, you know, staying. And it was a big conference room. There was like, it was like a big circular thing. You know, it's like you see these things like on sitcoms and stuff the cast is reading but this was bigger because we had all the studio executives there so I, mean, I was sweating bullets and i remember mustafa didn't sit during the whole reading he just walked around around the room with a pipe and just circled every time he got behind me he would go <laughs> and i'm like what does that mean <laughs> like everything he's hearing is shit as whether we're reading and acting the script out loud there, you know, and, and I just remember him coming to me because no, 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 it's beautiful, it's, it's wonderful, and you did a great job. And you said earlier that Donald Pleasance actually called you uh, and said he loved the script. I'm guessing that was mm -hmm. the the original script uh, before, well, yes. before, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that before one. production, yeah. the one, the one that we didn't get around to making. Any memories of Donald Pleasance? Obviously, this would be his last mm -hmm. film. Any sort of mm -hmm. something that stands out to you that was like, wow. I mean, just the fact that he was in it, and I remember the the trepidation I had in even writing these, this role, but these lines, you know, his line, the dialogue in that, the first movie and the second one, pure credit to John and Deborah, but mostly John I think wrote this dialogue, is that he just, he spoke like a Shakespearean character. Mm. You know, there was something so eloquent, so pointed about everything he said. I think, you know, the whole essence of evil and, you know, all of those things were so beautifully done that, I just didn't feel worried. I was like, I can't do this. I don't know where this is going to come from. And I just had to sort of channel my inner, you know, Loomis, I guess, and come up with what I came up with. And, you know, and, but the, 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 the thing that was just so strange for me was just to hear him say the lines, but he, he always kind of didn't say them exactly the way he wrote. Made, he knew the characters so well that he made them his own. And I will also say that I remember he needed to, something to bridge the, continuity between five and six for those who, you know, have been a lot, of, a lot of years since that film. So they wanted something to open the movie that would, you know, kind of remind the audience and the idea of this monologue came up and, and Donald just went into his trailer and he wrote that the, in, you hear it in the producer's cut, they changed it in the final had Paul Rudd do it, but Donald sat in his trailer and wrote that his own, on his own. So, you know, he was that, he was so committed to it. And I think just having the honor of of, of him saying those words was just a thrill that I'll never forget. You were speaking uh, on an, uh, another podcast uh, earlier in the year <clears throat> and the, you sort of brought up, you know, that there's potential to have like a prequel Sam Loomis um, series. Like, I mean, because that's the one, I guess, you look at the way people consume media now, in my opinion, it's sort of podcasts or obviously by okay. like a Netflix, by a streaming service. And I and I heard sure. you talk about this and I decided I'll give you the pitch of, um, well, why don't you could do like a little mini series, podcast series, like, you know, working title called The, the Loomis Files, where it's, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, it could be kind of, you could sort of incorporate like a tape recording, but also I guess have the ins and goings of him talking to 
the likes of a Dr. Wynn and sort of dropping into uh, this this madness? Listen, there's there's such a world of new media out there. Who knows what, you know, pardon the pun, shape this will take as we go forward. I mean, obviously, there's a, a new trilogy of films that needs to be resolved. Um, now the second, you know, and that's Halloween Kills, and then next year will be Halloween Ends. But I think once that's done, I think there's kind of now, they're going to be in more of an open road to doing other offshoots, you know, spinoffs, what have you. So who knows what form that might take? I mean, Malik and I had been talking about this for around the time of Halloween H2O. And that's how long this ago this was that I brought this to him. Um, and we started really kind of just throwing ideas around about what it could be. But yeah, I mean, there's something just fascinating about the Loomis character and, 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 and where he began and his backstory without, you know, violating too many things. I remember Donald was always very insistent, like he didn't have a family, didn't have a wife. Some of that stuff kind of wound up in one of the Halloween comics back in the day that I kind of contributed the story for. And so some of that material ended up there. And I think also like another great kind of um, source of it was the novelization by Curtis Richards of the original movie, which really kind of gives, you know, the whole prologue of the thing is, is Michael Myers locked in the sanitarium and how Loomis becomes this kind of vanguard against evil and all of these things. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's just rich backstory there that could be mined for future movies, podcasts, TV shows, who knows? Well, I'm, uh, I'll read between the lines. I'll uh, contact you uh, in a couple of years and uh, <laughs> we can uh, get this greenlit. <laughs> Let's go. I'm ready. <laughs> I guess, um, don't want to bash them too much, but the, oh. the Weinsteins, are they directly responsible, would you say, for Danielle Harris uh, not reprising her role as Jamie Lloyd? I mean, I can't say it was necessarily the Weinsteins, but it was certainly the, the company that they ran made the decision that she wasn't worth what she was asking, which was a very minimal amount of money for the role. And I remember being on a conference call, I was just in the room and this, you know, the Akkads were on, on the room where I was and, and, and producers on, on the production side. And, and then there was um, Danielle just on her own. I think maybe her agent was on the call too, but I think it was just Danielle and, and then kind of trying to talk her into doing the movie. And she's like, guys, you know, like they're, I, I don't know what to say, you know, like they're, they just don't want to give me anything, you know? And I, I feel like I have more. And, and I remember most of it was very like, no, 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 no. You're, you're, you're part of this family too. And you got to fix this. And, you know, and I think that was the, but I think at the end of it, I think it was some lawyer for Miramax that said, no, we're not paying her a cent more than what we're offering too bad. How much do you reckon that would have to do with uh, budget cuts or budget offsets? Because uh, rumor is that a lot of the, the money went to Hellraiser Bloodline. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know if that had to happen yet. I think that happened later in the process. I couldn't, I can't be completely sure. I mean, I wasn't involved on that level of things, but um, I don't think it was like budget cuts. I think they were just being stingy and horrible <laughs> as they were, you know, rumored to always be. And I, I mean, I'm sorry to be so, so horrible, you know, and say such negative things about them because listen i mean i somehow managed to survive a lot of the storm but you know they, they didn't do us many favors let's put it that way you mentioned the rosemary baby theme for halloween mm -hmm. six um the producer's cut it's obviously inferred that michael myers is indeed the father of jamie's baby was that always the case in your original script? no 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 like the fact that people say that is disturbing like no there was he was he didn't rape his niece 
it's not Michael. It's the essence of Michael's evil. Mm. It's, 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 it's metaphorical. It's not literal. And I don't understand quite how people have jumped to that. You know, I, it's one of the things that does bother me about the, the horror crowd, especially the online crowd is that they're very, they're literalists. They don't think necessarily beyond what they've been shown, you know? And I think the way the scene was shot wasn't exactly what I had in mind. But no, 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 no. There wasn't a literal raping. It wasn't an incestuous thing. It was, again, I go back to Rosemary's Baby. If remember, I remember the film, if you've seen it recently, but there is a, a like a ritual. There's like a drug Rosemary and suddenly she's hallucinating and she sees this figure come out that looks like, is that the devil? Is that somebody in a mask? We don't know who that is. And if that's what she's impregnated. And that was very similar to what was intended in Halloween 6 is that the mask could have been worn by anyone. It could have been a human. It could have just been something more spiritual, something more demonic. And so it was never intended, like Michael's having sex with this. <laughs> super preposterous. And the fact that people say that, it disturbs me because it's, it was never what was intended. And I guess um, for Halloween fans, there's a bit of closure with um, Danielle Harris sort of being um, cast in the, the, the Rob Zombie uh, Halloween remake, right, which... Right. which I guess as Halloween fans was a, a nice nod. For sure. And I also think, I think probably Malik had something to do with that because I feel like he thought she was owed some after the way she was treated, you know? So I think that, I, again, I don't know for sure, but I, I would imagine that, that part of the, the decision to, to put her in those films was because the Akkads felt, or Malik at that point, his dad had passed on, but, 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 but Danielle had earned that and she was owed that. We'll talk about podcasts just earlier with uh, the Sam Loomis story. Is there potential maybe a uh, podcast uh, revisit of uh, Halloween 6, the original script, and to do a, a reading there, perhaps uh, with the likes of Danielle Harris? And- oh, yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, I mean, we should have probably done it more when we were in lockdown. We were also bored. We had no to do with our time. Like, we probably should have thought of it then. Uh, now people are getting busy again, so I don't know. I mean, sure, you know, I mean, it'd be fun. Maybe, maybe if there's, you know, somebody who wants to do that, on the next anniversary of the film or something like that. You know, maybe we can talk about it, do some sort of stage, like live reading of it. That would be kind of fun. Did you read lines with Paul Rudd for uh, his audition for Clueless? Oh, did I run lines with him? No, no, uh uh-uh. No, I do remember him coming to the set of Halloween 6 one morning. And we, you know, you have to understand, like we were all kind of the same age and, you know, there was nothing to do you know, at night. So we'd hang out with each other or we'd have breakfast in the morning and, you know, we're, you know, the same age group. So it just made sense. We all kind of gravitated to each other. And, um, and then we were the young, you know, the whippersnappers. And then there were the older guys, you know, that we just were kind of always, ah, oh, that guy, you know? <laughs> he doesn't understand anything. Um, but, um, but no, no, Paul, I remember coming to that one morning saying, oh, I just, Everyone was kind of excited for him. You know, I just got cast in this movie called Clueless. I'm going to start it right after, you know, we finish. So everybody was excited. That's, that's the only thing I knew about it. And did you see the potential with Paul Rudd? Did you say when you saw him, be like, you're going to be Ant-Man? <laughs> no, I didn't. I did. Not at all. I mean, you have to, like, again, you were just a group of kids so happy to be a part of this. He was thrilled. I was, we were all just so glad to be there. Marianne Hagen, myself, Mariah O'Brien, Bogart, all these, you know, we were all just kind of astounded, you know, like, what are we doing here? <laughs> this is so cool. 
you know, Paul was just one of us. And I, I, you know, I remember some of the women on set just, Oh, Paul, you know, and so like, like, like falling head over heels with over him. And I just was like, him. Okay. We would hang out in each other's rooms. Like, you know, we had VHS deck and watch a movie at night or play pool, wherever, you know, things like that. So he's just so normal that it just never, none of that occurred to me. It's just another guy. And a nice one again, just sweet and and fun and and I remember him telling me. I remember one. There was a moment where he he found out the way, like I've been explaining to you, the way I got hired to do the movie, and he just was, oh my god. He's like, that makes it so much cooler now. Like it, they makes it makes me want to make it so much better because this wasn't just like some guy getting a job to write a film. Like this is your like life's passion. And then I remember him telling me a story of how when he had seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind when he was a kid, that it had so disturbed him that his parents, like, I think had to take him to therapy. Because <laughs> I told him the story of how I was, like, sitting on the couch watching Halloween. I was like, terrified. So I mean, we just share stories like that of our, you know, the stuff that made you who you are, you know. But I, but I knew, I remember very vividly him being so much more invested in, in the project when he found out how much I had gone through to, to get that job and what it meant to me. So, yeah, he's that kind of guy. Still is. It just popped into my head um, in, in the style of uh, Sam Loomis to say his famous line from Anchorman, 60% of the time it works every time. <laughs> right, right, right. That's for sure. So I was just gonna be like a Donald, like a trying to think how Donald Pleasance would say like sixty percent of the time. Oh right! Oh, you want me to say it, or do you? Oh, want if, you if you if you do, I mean, uh, oh, that'd, God, be, uh, that'd be a great soundbite. Yeah, no, I'm not gonna do that. No. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Do then. Loomis, but it takes a minute for me. <laughs> I guess Halloween Six, the uh, the Curse of Michael Myers. Originally, it was going to be Halloween Six Six Six, the origins of uh, Michael Myers. But I guess not my script. I don't yours. know who wrote the origin. That's not my. That was never not my yours. title. Yeah, because no. I mean, there's trailers and that um, out of it as well. I mean, um, yeah. and 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 to this day, we're all like, who made that trailer? Nobody knows who made that because wow. nobody in the Akkad side of the world did knew anything about an origin of Michael Myers title that anybody approved. So that was never a title that anybody had ever ever discussed or just you know approved somebody threw that on a trailer and that was it the 666 was the script though that's all it was it was just halloween 666 and then i'll never forget mustafa had come into the production office which was just a room in this hotel salt lake city one morning with the pipe and i was like i I, literally i think i was in my pajamas (laughs) because i'd been up all night rewriting stuff probably wasn't in the best mood and and i remember they were screening dailies in one corner of this office and and i'm looking at it what what that's not that's not this like that what what, i don't even understand like what am i looking at you know like it was i don't i think it was the scene where the radio dj falls out of the tree like what what is that this looks like it looks like a mannequin i was like that's just like a test shot they're like no that's the footage and i'm like what I never really held back. And then most of it comes and he's asking like, well, we need kind of like a title, like a subtitle, something, you know, we had the return of Michael Myers, we had the revenge. And I said, well, based on what I'm seeing, because everything else, the way they're handling everything here is like, we should just call this the curse. (laughs) And suddenly he's like, oh, I like it. And that's how the title was born. Me just kind of bitching about 
what I was seeing was just not up to my, apparently my rigorous standards. <laughs> I mean, if you ask one thing I would like to see, like if I would have done differently, so I would have lobbied to have directed the film myself. And you would have um, hired uh, Howard Stern as the radio shock jock. Uh, we tried, actually. It, the word went out. And he, he was making or was in the process of getting his uh, private parts movie off the ground at that point. He didn't want to do anything else. But yeah, that was, I think that, I don't know if an offer was made, but I think they explored it. Yeah. The other idea there was, it was to have Mike Myers play guy. Just play Mike Myers, like mm. comedian Mike Myers. And that never transpired, obviously. I guess sort of looking 26 years um, past now, I guess, what, what do you think the legacy of Halloween 6 is? You know, I don't know. It's, it's weird for me because I, I have my opinions about the finished film, but it's interesting to me that how many, and, and I, I'm astounded, like, again, you're asking me to talk about this movie, but also just the, on the online forums and the you know, Facebook forums and things, just the number of people that say they love it and it was the first one they saw. And I think there's some nostalgia behind this movie. because I do think it came out at a time when some, you know, it was like with the original movie, me sitting on the couch and being a 12 year old and how impressionable you are at that age. I think there were people of that, you know, were that age at the time that have a fondness for the movie. And listen, I don't begrudge them that I appreciate it. I love the love. Uh, it means the world, you know, I don't love the movie as it stands like, but I love that I had that experience of getting to be involved in it. Would you say it's a, it's bittersweet? You got to work on something that you're a fan of and loved as uh, a kid growing up uh, in the genre, mm-hmm. but it was it, yeah. it was it was kind of your your break in into the business, so to speak. Sure. Yeah. No. I mean, listen, it forever changed my life. I mean, it gave me a career that's lasted 26 years now. So I don't, you know, again, I don't begrudge any of that. Um, do I have my opinions about the outcome of the film itself? And when it's on TV, do I go, oh, <laughs> I do, you know, but um, that being said, you know, it was, it was just something I wouldn't change because of what it was. And I think it, it holds its own. You know, I think it's one of the most atmospheric of the series. I think it's the last of the true quote unquote franchise and that it continued a continuity established from the, first film if you take the third film out of the equation and it was the last one with donald pleasance you know and i feel like that makes it special in its own right so those are the things that i sort of focus on absolutely daniel ferrins you've been very generous with your time uh, i love to call this segment the plug obviously we we're talking earlier about uh, ted bundy american boogeyman eileen warnos american boogie woman there are uh, judy hit theaters uh, uh respectively uh august 16th for ted bundy september 20 for eileen warnos i mean uh, if people want to find out more information or anything to do with these films what's the best way to do that I would go to the uh, Fathom Events website. Fathom Events uh, here in the U.S. I don't know if they are in Australia, but they uh, are. They put independent films in, in theatrical environments um, for limited runs, and so Fathom sort of has all of the backstory of the films. It's also got their website has places like a like a, a link to where you can buy tickets at theaters close to you. And have you been to Australia before? I haven't, but I have a friend who lives there and keeps inviting me, but I can't come now because of this whole lockdown situation. So um, I have not visited your beautiful area of the world, and I would love to. Uh, you mean the zombie virus? 
the zombie bars. Yes, I do want to go there for sure. <laughs> no, but I guess when um, I say this as, it, as it's going to happen, like uh, tomorrow when we do clear up all these vaccinations and COVID, um, definitely have to get you uh, down under. And the oh, one thing nice. that that Australia uh, lacks, and obviously it's a, it's a population thing, is I would love to see more horror conventions uh, down under because I feel mm. there's a there's a there's a bed of uh, big horror fans here. I believe me, and I and I, it's interesting you mentioned because I I do get a lot of um, you know inquiries and you know requests for autographs things like that. Uh, luckily, it's not so much um, where can I get the producer's cut anymore. I still <laughs> get those from time to time, but yeah, no, I I I I, I hear you, and um, I think that that needs to be a priority. So it needs to bring the you know the convention world, the horror convention world, out your side of the world and. Uh, those introductions to all these people and just the excitement around it it's just always so fun to me you know to see people's enthusiasm for it. I, I love it absolutely greatly appreciate your time writer director daniel ferens thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with us and uh, all the best and um, can't wait to see your two new features coming out uh thank you joel i appreciate it you have a great rest of your day